Global Connections Television is a privately funded, independently produced program. The opinions expressed on Global Connections are solely those of the moderator and his guests. We invite you to go to the website at www.globalconnectionstelevision.com to view previous shows. If you're involved with a PBS or community access television station or an educational institution that has an intra-campus television hookup, or perhaps a podcast or just a computer and would like to share the programs, please feel free to do so. Global Connections is provided at no cost to help people in the U.S. and worldwide better understand how international issues impact our lives. I'm Bill. Today we're going to talk about the coal industry in West Virginia, but it would also apply to the coal industry in many other states in the U.S. and in countries around the world. I guess today is an expert on this topic. Professor James Van Nostren is an author, a professor of law, and the director of the Center for Energy and Sustainable Development at West Virginia University. His most recent book is The Coal Trap, How West Virginia Was Left Behind in the Clean Energy Revolution. Professor Van Nostren, welcome to today's Global Connections program. Thank you very much, Bill. Thanks for inviting me. I appreciate you being with me today. We're going to jump right into your book in a minute, but let's talk about your very interesting Center for Energy and Sustainable Development at WVU. What is the main purpose of the center? The center was started in July of 2011. It's a, a recognition. I mean, West Virginia is an extraction state. It has a history of being an extraction state, and that's just um, the, the realities. But the idea was the center would provide some perspective, some environmental protections perspective, it would provide a forum for, we, for annual conferences, for example, to explore um, energy issues and, and balancing the extraction industry, the development of economic development and the um, environmental protection, just to have a different perspective. Well, it's, it's certainly a very timely operation and I'm sure it's in great demand right now. And our viewers can go to your website at www.energy.law wvu.edu for more information on this very interesting activity. Well, let's move into your book and talk about it a bit. You've got so many different interesting concepts in there. One, you refer to a lost decade. What exactly is that lost decade? That was actually the working title of the book as I was, as I was writing it. Um, I've been at WVU since 2011. And, and the, the lost decade is the period roughly 2009 to 2019. It starts off when the, the shale gas revolution, the ability to extract shale from, or extract natural gas from shale. West Virginia sits on top of the Marcellus Shale, which is the leading gas producing region in the United States. And that extraction of, of natural gas from shale really started cranking up around 2007, 2008, 2009. And that made a big difference in the energy industry. And about the same time, we also had President Obama um, going into the White House, ramping up environmental um, protection laws. And so it made a nice starting point in terms of um, that things were much different in the energy industry. And then how did West Virginia political leaders respond during this 10 years? Because because natural gas really had a huge impact on the coal industry. But with with availability, mass quantities of natural gas at very low prices became available. It was a real game changer in terms of, of lowering wholesale electricity prices and pushing coal plants out of the money, basically. And it's 
and and rather than really responding to the fact that natural gas was going to forever change the, the the economics for the coal industry later on in the decade we had cheaper wind and solar west virginia political leaders just dug in and, and complained about a war on coal and complained it all on obama's job killing epa didn't really manage this inevitable transition in the electric industry they were pretty much in denial and blaming it on washington dc so it's a lost decade in terms of we knew things were going to be completely different and rather than acknowledging that embracing that helping manage the state through that transition let's just blame it all on washington and obama's job killing epa that that's interesting you brought up that concept of war on coal and we've heard that there really isn't a war on coal nobody wants to put coal miners out of work this is we see a shifting technology taking place we see the climate is being ravaged by fossil fuels through coal, oil, gas, those types of extractions and, and utilizations. But there really is not a war on coal, is there? I mean, it seems like a bogus issue. I mean, you could almost say, well, when we move from using automobiles and, and not using horses, there was a war on buggy whips or a war on horses, couldn't you? I mean, it's really ridiculous. I mean, when you hear some of the nonsense these politicians put out, Oh, it's a great point, Bill. And I, and I spent a lot of time in the book talking about uh, the political landscape in West Virginia, 2010, 2012, those elections, pretty much all the all the candidates running for office at the Senate level and the congressional level. It was all about the war on coal. And it was just blaming it all on on Obama's, they called Obama's job killing EPA. And there was uh, billboards up and down I-79 in West Virginia. Welcome to the no job zone with a, you know, a picture of Obama and the EPA on there. So it but it's, it, I mean, there was clear implications on coal because of the environmental policies of the EPA in terms of where it was focusing on, on climate change and reducing greenhouse gas emissions. And at the time, coal was the largest source of greenhouse gas emissions and electrical generation. So it did have implications for coal. But one of the points I make in the book, it was really low cost and plentiful natural gas. And then later in the decade, wind and solar, those are the overwhelming market forces that caused the demise of the cold industry, not environmental regulations. Uh, they certainly were. And what we're talking about today, as I mentioned earlier, <clears throat> is really a microcosm. We're talking about West Virginia, but it, it would apply to Kentucky. It could even apply to the strip mining going on in Wyoming. And it could certainly apply to the coal mines in Poland or the utilization of coal in India. This is not just limited to us in the United States, but you're absolutely right. The, the energy market is changing. People are becoming aware of the climate crisis. And also they're looking at the, the cost factors. It's now, as I understand it, it is so much cheaper to use solar, wind, some alternative clean energy, is it not? Yeah, that's, that's one of the points I make in, in the book. It's not, I mean, the environmental issues are still there and they're problematic, but, but just moving apart away from the environmental issue and looking strictly at economics if the utility um, goes into the market today and says how do we how do we um, provide another two or three hundred megawatts of new resources and developers come in and they and they bid the winning bids are going to be wind and solar it's now cheaper to install new wind and solar than to run an existing coal plant so we have a lot of coal plants closing down because it's a it's a pretty competitive market for electricity and utilities are expected to try to manage their the resources in a way to minimize costs on customers they have a, a strong incentive by the regulators to keep costs down and that means you acquire the cheapest resource and that that cheap resource is no longer coal 
Well, it's, I think we're all in agreement that uh, the politicians dropped the ball, bungled it, to put it mildly. <laughs> the industry did to a large degree because, of course, they got $17 trillion in fossil fuels in the ground that they want to sell. So they're going to keep trying to do that. What are we doing, though, as I mentioned a minute ago, to help the transition for the, for the coal miners in West Virginia to get gainful employment in some other type of industry, an industry that probably would pay more, would be less damaging to the, certainly to the miners' loans, that's for sure, I would mm -hmm. imagine. But what, what types of programs are in place right now? One of the things, you know, the, the legislation that President Biden just signed on Tuesday, the Inflation Reduction Act, and I got to give some credit to Senator Joe Manchin, who who fought the build back better and scaled it down from six trillion to three and a half trillion to one point seven trillion to nine hundred million. And then we got finally something about three hundred seventy thousand or three hundred seventy million. Um, but they're. There are things called energy communities um, in the in the bill. So there's there's enhanced investment tax credits. Whereas if you locate your manufacturing facility or your renewable energy production facility in what's called an energy community, and those communities are defined as you know being being adversely affected by the decline of the fossil fuel industry. So if you had a coal plant there that closed down, if you had a coal mine there that closed down, natural gas extraction there that closed down. So there's targeted investment targeted tax relief for those particular cities. That bill, even though there are a lot of elements of it that didn't go as far as a lot of people would like, obviously, right. especially some of the uh, climate or environmental groups, I guess you could say. But it, it, as I understand it, it's the most comprehensive piece of legislation to combat climate change that we've ever had. Is, is that correct? Yes, it, it definitely is. I think uh, a big piece of it are the extension yeah. of the production tax credits for wind and solar because the market for wind and solar tends to be pretty cyclical, depending upon the production tax credits expire. And now we've got those extended for another 10 years. And, and also the ability to, um, to, to monetize those. If you're a nonprofit organization, a, a, a school, um, a church, charitable organization, you don't have a tax liability. And so there was a limited ability to take advantage of these production tax credits, but you can now monetize that. You can basically... Um, get a refund from the from the government for the the tax credit that you would have gotten had you been a taxpayer, basically. So that it just it lowers those upfront costs of wind of you know of rooftop solar. It just you're looking at a pretty big chunk of change if you want to put solar panels on your roof. But but now with a thirty percent investment tax credit um, for for um, citizens, it that just makes it much more affordable. It sounds like there are many incentives there to move from that to, to electric or to uh, some other type of clean energy and alternative form of energy. I mentioned a minute ago too about the regulators in uh, how do regulators affect the market in West Virginia or elsewhere? What, uh, what role do they play as far as perpetuating some of the myths about the coal industry or, uh, or perhaps making changes? Perhaps, I'm not sure which. Well, I think if you're referring to like the the utility regulators, I mean that's what oh, I'm most right. exactly. yeah that's what I'm most familiar with. I, I started off with five years at the New York Public Service Commission. My father was the regulator, chief regulator in Iowa for eight years when I when I grew up, and then I spent 22 years representing investor-owned utilities in these rate proceedings. And one of the things I talk about in the book is the tremendous power that these public service commissions or public utility commissions, what they have in terms of shaping a state's energy policies. They have a really broad grant of authority and 
They oversee the utilities resource decisions in terms of whether they're building coal or natural gas or wind or solar. And, and that's been a big issue in West Virginia. Um, uh, the, when I crunch the numbers from my book, um, between the years of 2008 and 2020, which roughly corresponds to what I referred to as the lost decade, our electricity prices in West Virginia on average went up at a rate that was five times the national average. Because notwithstanding this shale gas revolution, utilities around the country moving quickly into natural gas and later on in the decade moving into wind and solar, we're still 88% coal fired in West Virginia. And that is not a cost effective way to generate electricity anymore. And our ratepayers have had to bear the consequences of this commission, the Public Service Commission in West Virginia, their continued commitment to burning coal. They're pushing the utilities to continue running the coal plants at historical levels, notwithstanding the availability of cheaper resources they can acquire in the, in the wholesale market in our region and also acquire from neighboring utilities or wind and solar projects that are locating in the region. It's the pressures on to keep running the coal plants and who cares about the impacts on the ratepayers. That has, that has major, we, it's, we're a fairly poor state. We, our ratepayers just can't afford to keep paying higher prices because the commission continues to follow these policies. And one of the challenges we're confronted with is the fact that so much of the political action committee money goes to politicians in Washington who continue to perpetuate these very inequitable situations and to cause us to really not move as quickly as we should to get into a cleaner form of energy. Well, you're watching Global Connections Television, which is a privately funded, independently produced program. The opinions expressed on Global Connections are solely those of the moderator and his guest. We'd invite our viewers to go to our website at www.globalconnectionstelevision.com to view previous programs. Also, if you're involved with a PBS or community access television station, or perhaps an, an educational institution that has an intra-campus television hookup, or you have a podcast, or you just have a computer, you like our shows, and you would like to share them, please feel free to do so. Global Connections Television is provided at no cost as a public service to help us better understand international issues and how they impact our lives. Today, we're taking a look at a very interesting book that deals with the coal industry. It's titled The Coal Trap, How West Virginia Was Left Behind in the Clean Energy Revolution. It was written by Professor James Van Nostrand. Professor, we've talked about clean energy and what have you. Some people also bring up nuclear energy. And of course, that is a very, as I understand, a very clean form of energy. The problem is we have uranium rods that we're not sure what to do with. They can have a lifespan of a couple thousand years, maybe, or something like that. And of course, you run into that situation, NIMBY, not in my backyard. A lot of people don't want a nuclear reactor next door to them because they're afraid there'd be an accident. What role do you see for nuclear? Or is there a role? Or should we just keep moving forward with solar, wind, and hydro, or whatever else we can use? I personally think there, there needs to be a role for, for nuclear. Uh, one of the things you know that natural gas and coal gives us is, is baseload generation, right? Power plants that can run around the clock and provide massive amounts of, of energy. Wind and solar are intermittent resources. When the wind doesn't blow or the sun doesn't shine, you've got to have something to firm those up. We tend to use natural gas. And so um, there needs to be a role for, for nuclear because it's carbon-free baseload generation. 
we've just had a horrible track record in the over the over the in the United States in terms of being able to build nuclear plants um, without massive cost overruns and construction delays. The two plants that are currently under construction by Georgia Power, I think the last numbers I saw were $28 billion for 2,000 megawatts of generation. That's just not economical when you compare it to a, a new, you know, a brand new natural gas combined cycle combustion turbine. Now, what's going forward are what's called SMRs, small modular reactors. Um, Bill Gates, for one, is a huge proponent of that. The idea is, well, maybe if we make them smaller and make them more plug and play sort of a thing where we can build these modules and then and then move them to the site, plug them in um, and try to keep them control the cost that way. Um, then that may be a solution, but it, those numbers are still pretty high. But I, I do think as we scale it up, we're going to achieve economies of scale. We'll bring those numbers down. And as you mentioned, you still have the, the waste issue. We don't, we don't have a permanent solution for, for disposal of high-level radioactive waste in the United States. And it's, it's a little bit hard to put a price on, well, what is, what is the output of that nuclear plant going to cost if you don't really know what you're going to end up paying for, to dispose of that waste? But I, th and I think there's a we need to figure it out because I think there needs to be a role for, for nuclear in order to provide that baseload generation. What would you recommend if you had, say, a magic wand for members of Congress or the leaders in West Virginia? What three steps could they take to move even more aggressively to help us deal with this problem and to help rectify it as quickly as possible? Well, the big thing is, unfortunately, I, I think we just cannot continue to, um, to to run the coal plants. I mean, those that are economical, um, but there there are very few that are economical. We need to we need to figure out how to how to um, transition and 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 eventually close those down more more quickly. I think, as you mentioned, there there's a real sense of urgency right now. This has been a really miserable year for the the climate. We still what's going on today with the Colorado River um, and and the 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 reservoirs behind the dams in the southwest and, and the droughts and the wildfires and here in west virginia and kentucky we've had considerable flooding the last few days and so we're seeing some some up close impacts of climate change and it's only going to get worse and get get worse more quickly i think we have to just we have to stop investing in fossil fuel resources i mean one of the things that that senator manchin has in connection with this inflation reduction act is pushing through the mountain valley pipeline uh, which is a natural gas pipeline to move natural gas from the marcellus shale region down to north carolina and virginia and that's a 6.6 .6 billion dollar pipeline and once you start making those kinds of investments in continued fossil fuel then you're going to have you're, you're going to have this resistance to it's it's a stranded investment and so we're just extending what's this natural gas was a bridge you know until we can um, scale up re renewable sources but it's a bridge to nowhere in terms of what the impacts on the on the planet we just need to need to phase out um, fossil fuels and I think in West Virginia in particular I think we need to be looking at a clean electricity standard lots of We've got probably a dozen states around the country that are committed to going to net zero by 2045, 2050, just basically decarbonizing the grid and decarbonizing the transportation system. But to put something in place that's going to that's going to require some progress towards decarbonizing the the um, electric grid. And apparently this bill that you mentioned, the IRA, has really jumped in as far as promoting electric vehicles and electric charging stations and of course as we move into that there'll be less demand for gasoline oil different things like that so the demand is going to drop exxon mobiles 
is would not be wise to put its money into drilling if there's not going to be a market for it in 5, 10, 15 years. And that is apparently where we we're heading, with, without a doubt. You're in a state that has been involved in coal mining, as I am I'm in Kentucky, coal mining in East Kentucky, well, even over in West Kentucky to some degree. But how do you see the culture playing into this? Do you, there has been a, a sort of a resistance among a lot of miners for various reasons, some because they have bad information about what's happening and others because, well, we've done it for generations. We're going to continue to do it and hopefully we will. It's a good paying job, as you mentioned, you get out of high school, you're making $80,000 a year. But are they starting to realize that this is not the future and mining is going to be dead in not too many years? It's, it's coming. And if they don't have an alternative job or alternative energy, it's going to be a bleak picture for them. Is that changing a bit? I think it's changing a bit. Um, I mean, one of the points I make in the in the book is is the difference between the coal miners. Everyone loves the coal miners in West Virginia. You know, you have a history of mining in the family. My father was a coal miner. My grandfather was a coal miner. My uncle was a coal miner. You just you hear that. I have students in my classes. They come from coal families, um, and so there's you know, just a um, it's a, it's a very compelling image, the coal miner, but the coal operators are, are a whole different deal in terms of how they treat the coal miners. And, and you need to make a distinction between the two because the coal operators, when they go into bankruptcy, what's the first thing they shed? Well, they shed the retirement obligations and the healthcare benefits for the retired coal miners. And then they shed their environmental remediation liabilities. So the coal operators do not take good care of the coal of the coal miners. But as far as the transition goes, I think, you know, you mentioned Eastern Kentucky. One of the things I write about in my book is, is, you know, what does real leadership look like? And one of the examples I gave was shaping our Appalachian region, which when Steve Bashir was the Democratic governor of Kentucky, Hal Rogers was a Republican congressman, the chair of the Appropriations Committee. Back in 2012, they started this shaping our Appalachian region, which pretty much says, Coal mining, as we know it in Eastern Kentucky, is over, and we need to figure out a new future and and work on that transition. But acknowledge that that it's just not going to be the same way in the coal fields. And we never had that in West Virginia. We've never had politicians stepping up and say, "We need to plan a different future here." Instead, we're going to waste all our energy talking about a war on coal and blaming everything on Obama's job killing EPA. And it's difficult. So we're behind. That's why we refer to it as a lost decade in terms of it's you can't get people to focus on a transition if you have your political leaders saying, well, that we don't need to transition. The coal jobs aren't going away or they're coming back. I mean, our governor, Jim Justice, was was reelected in 2020. His platform was Jim Justice. He never gave up on coal. I mean, come on, this is the year 2020. And then we had, of course, Donald Trump came in and said the coal mining jobs are coming back. And so it's been difficult to to really get much, much uh, momentum for this transition in West Virginia when you have political leaders that really deny that we even need to talk about a transition. The misinformation is mind-boggling. And yes. if anybody looks at the statistics, you can see the coal mine jobs have started to decline. They, not just recently, they started decades ago because of automation and yeah. lack of, well, loss of, lack of demand for coal, and they're just dropping precipitously. Well, we're about out of time, but at very uh, last 30 seconds, as I understand it, we are really paying or subsidizing 
the fossil fuel industry to like $500 billion a year with taxpayer money. I don't know if that's the exact figure now, but it's a huge amount. What would happen if we were to stop that subsidy to ExxonMobil and put it into clean energy? That's it's definitely worth worth talking about. I, I think you know the way the tax code is written and the way these production tax credits and investment tax credits for, for renewable resources they 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 expire right they set to expire a certain amount of time so this, there's way too much attention focused on oh all these subsidies going for for renewable resources why because we always have this we have this debate every three or four or five years now they're extended for ten years but the the subsidies for the fossil fuel industries are hardwired into the code they they don't they don't come up for debate they don't we don't decide about them every year and so if you really put everybody everything on a level playing field um it would be a much different much different outcome but i think you know there's a there's a real sense of urgency we need to we need to scale things up pretty pretty drastically for clean energy resources and that, and that includes the zero carbon resources like like nuclear, and I think one of the things you know, Manchin really likes the carbon capture and sequestration and and the hydrogen, but 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 the the things that are going to help us decarbonize and and scale up the tax credits. Because I think you know one of the things I talk about in the book is you know solar prices came down ninety percent between twenty ten and twenty twenty. Wind came down seventy two percent. Why? Because we scaled it up, and the economy is a scale that you achieve by investing in research and development. You bring those costs down. I think the same thing can happen with nuclear, perhaps with hydrogen, perhaps with carbon capture and sequestration. But we just need to provide the incentives to really scale that up to decarbonize on a much more rapid pace than we're doing right now. If we got behind it, it would be better for the, the taxpayer. It'd be better for the consumer. It'd be cheaper. It'd be a safer environment. And hopefully we could will forestall some of the adverse impacts of climate change. But yes. Professor James Van Nostren, I want to thank you so very much for a very interesting and a very informative program. Thank you, Bill. Great to be on the show. Thank you. I'm Bill Miller. Thank you for joining us today on Global Connections Television.